The particular aspect of history, which both attracts and benefits its readers, is the examination of causes and the capacity, which is the reward of this study, to decide in each case the best policy to follow. Welcome to Handmade Humanity, a podcast that helps you in the lifelong pursuit of wisdom and virtue. Each week, we will explore classical literature and ideas, making them accessible to the average reader. There are no shortcuts, techniques, or methods that can substitute for judgment, dexterity, and care, because humanity is handmade. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Handmade Humanity. I'm Austin Hoffman. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we explore great classical literature and seek to apply the ideas to our modern situation. I'm excited today to talk about Polybius, a sometimes overlooked historian, but yet provides such a foundational basis for our current system of government, as well as advice for how we should live and how we should engage in politics today. Polybius is a Roman historian who's writing about the time of the uh, Punic Wars. Uh, he, he was born during one of the wars or just before it and then outlived the end of the wars. And so his analysis is incredibly important to us as Americans, if you're listening from, from America, because the Roman constitution really forms the basis for our American system of government governance. So many of the ideas that Polybius espouses are in the background of say, Montesquieu, who was a large influence on the Constitution, and Polybius's ideas were an influence on the framers of the U.S. Constitution. Now, Polybius is also a historian, so he's describing the events of the Punic Wars, these wars between Carthage and Rome. And he says that this is important because the particular aspect of history, which both attracts and benefits its readers, is the examination of causes and the capacity, which is the reward of this study, to decide in each case the best policy to follow. Now, in all political situations, we must understand that the principal factor which makes for success or failure is the form of the state's constitution. It is from this source, as if from a fountainhead, that all designs and plans of action not only originate, but reach their fulfillment. I think it's an incredibly relevant question to ask ourselves. What is the best form of government? How do we shape our institutions and customs and constitutions so that we are best able to achieve success? This is what Polybius is is asking. He says we need to study history because we can learn what causes different things, but then we also can discover what is the best policy to follow. And he makes a second claim in there, if you you caught it, that the uh, basis for Rome's success in war And the basis for any country's success in the difficulties that they face is, in fact, their constitution, their form of government. So as we are uh, experiencing a great time of unrest during this COVID crisis and transition of power and and many things going on in the U.S. in in the year 2020 and 2021, uh, Polybius' instructions to us would be to pay attention to the form of government that we have. Because it is the source, as if the fountainhead of all designs and plans of action that not only originate, but also reach their fulfillment. So we ought to pay attention to our government. Now, let me give you a little bit of a background about Polybius. Uh, Polybius was born maybe about 200 BC. He lived to about 118 BC. He lived through the events of the Persian, or sorry, the Punic Wars. Um, and he 
uh, was somewhat of an ambassador for Rome. Uh, after the destruction of Corinth, which is what, at the very end of the, the Punic Wars, they destroy Carthage, and then they go and destroy Corinth as well. Uh, Polybius returns to Greece. It seems like he's asked acting like a bit of a, an apologist for the Roman constitution. He's supposed to reorganize new forms of government for these different Greek cities and colonies, and it's while he's in this capacity that he earns a lot of his, his recognition. Now his work, the work that I'm going to be considering today, uh, called The Histories, covers the period from 264 BC to 146 BC, which are the dates uh, from the beginning of the First Punic War all the way to the end of the Third Punic War. But he mainly focuses on the period from 220 BC to 167 BC, so almost right in the middle of the Second uh, Punic War and then extending up to the beginning of the Third Punic War. Polybius's conclusion, which I think is, is vital for us to understand, is that he is going to claim that Rome gained mastery over the Mediterranean, over Carthage, and, and over the world because of their customs and institutions. Now, these customs and institutions were good because they provoked within the Romans a desire for nobility, a desire for personal virtue and piety, that they would honor their parents and their elders and the Senate, they would fear the gods, and it is these qualities that allowed Rome to ex extend itself throughout the Mediterranean. That might be a controversial claim today because we don't often think of personal virtue as having any impact in the world. Who cares if average Joe on the street has personal piety? How is that going to affect the U.S.'s dealings with, with foreign powers? Well, Polybius is, is claiming that the Constitution right, is the most important part, how the government is functioning. And if that Constitution is such that enables personal and private virtue, well, then this is going to guarantee the stability of the state and success in its endeavors. But that's not something that we, we typically consider. Uh, we might claim that our, our politicians need to have high standards. We are upset when they get caught in scandal, whether personal or, or public uh, misuse of office. But yet we don't often extend that down to the citizens. But Polybius wants us to be concerned with the citizens as well. Now, as I mentioned, he's writing about the Punic Wars, which were three wars fought between Rome and Carthage. The third war is, is really just Rome tying up loose ends, and so there's, there's not much to discuss with the third war. The first war, uh, which took place from 264 to 241 BC, was the first conflict between Rome and Carthage. Uh, both are growing powers at this time. Uh, they are locally isolated. Uh, Rome essentially established its control over Italy, but it hadn't expanded much further. Meanwhile, Carthage is a growing Phoenician colony, on the north coast of Africa, almost just across the Mediterranean from Rome, and they're starting to expand their influence. The point of conflict in the First Punic War takes place on Sicily, and Rome is able to be successful in this, this war. But the very interesting one, and probably most important phase of the Punic Wars, are the Second. Now, the Second Punic War, the Carthaginians managed to find or create perhaps one of the top five generals in the world, perhaps top three, Hannibal. Now, you've probably heard of Hannibal if you've spent any time studying ancient history. An absolutely brilliant tactician, uh, general, manager of his campaigns, and he is so very close to conquering Rome. And it's fun to imagine uh, what history would be like if Hannibal had been successful. We have the man in the high castle, which considers what would have happened if Germany had won World War II. 
And that's really only considering a period of about you know, 60 years or, or 80 years up to the present time. But imagine how history would be different if Carthage had in fact won the Punic Wars and conquered Rome. And really, they were only a whisker away from conquering uh, Rome. So Polybius is describing Hannibal's uh, victories, his tactics. Uh, they are, uh, he is really Rome's greatest test that they ever face. So Hannibal uh, crosses over into Spain and starts moving towards Italy uh, at, at the beginning of the, the Second Punic War. Along the way, he's recruiting different Germanic tribes, different uh, uh, Gauls who are sympathetic and really just hate the Romans. And so they're willing to join on. And he amasses this force of something like 60,000 to 80,000 men to go attack Rome. Previously, Rome thought they were relatively insulated from the north because of the Alps. Yet Hannibal embarks on this massive uh, building or construction prog project where he's able to clear uh, some of the brush and, and the overgrowth. And previously... Uh, a man could scarcely crawl through this area, but he makes it so that he, he can get elephants across the Alps. And so he's bringing the, the heavy uh, artillery, as it were, or the, or the big pack animals across the Alps, and, and Rome is in trouble. Uh, through some different uh, battles, a Carthage, or Carthage and Hannibal just decimate legion after legion of the Romans. So they send a man, uh, Fabius, to go attack uh, Hannibal. Uh, Hannibal beats them in a pitched battle and has them on the run, but as this, this group of Romans is retreating, Hannibal actually manages to surround them and ambush them. And uh, one of the editors of the edition that I'm using notes that this is one of the few times in history that uh, an entire army lays in ambush uh, and accounts for the entire enemy army. And this just shows Hannibal's brilliance because he destroys maybe 15,000 Romans in this battle. Uh, and they had nothing they could do at all. They were lost in fog. They couldn't come to the aid of each other. They were stretched out. They were pinned between some mountains or hills and a lake, and Hannibal just decimates them. Well, this starts to make Rome panic, and so they enlist another force, and they recruit another force of you know maybe 20,000 men. They go after Hannibal again, and he wipes them out. He just mops the floor with him. And so Rome is in huge trouble because Hannibal is in North Italy. He's taking all the richest towns, and he is pressing down on Rome. Well, uh, Rome decides to elect as dictator uh, a man, um, Fabius, uh, who earns the title Fabius the Delayer, uh, because essentially his strategy is to never face Hannibal in pitched combat or an open battle. He'll harass Hannibal's smaller forces, uh, foragers, scavengers, pillagers, uh, reconnaissance, but he will never face Hannibal in pitched battle. So Hannibal keeps trying to goad him into a, a full fight where, where Hannibal's tactical brilliance will, will be able to take the four, except Fabius keeps refusing. And so there's actually a poem about Fabius uh, that basically Fabius, by his delaying, ended up saving Rome because of this, because he didn't lose as many soldiers as some of these others. Uh, Rome only manages to escape this perilous situation by launching a counterattack after about 10 more years of, of just constant pressure. They send Scipio down into Africa, uh, and he wins two major battles, and he's on his way to Carthage. Well, the Carthaginians start to panic. They recall Hannibal. Uh, so Hannibal has to come back from his mission in the Alps uh, and in Rome uh, back to defend his city, and he ends up losing to Scipio Africanus uh, at the Battle of Zama, I believe. So it's, it's a very last-ditch gambit by the Romans. We're just going to counterattack. We're going to send a our, our, our large force over into Africa to try and win there. 
and, and hopes, and it pays off. Uh, it, it manages to work. So although the Punic Wars are fascinating to study in their own right, um, Polybius is mostly concerned with what this did to the Romans. Now, the Romans are very different from the Greeks in that the Greeks tend to uh, philosophize and think abstractly about the, the best form of government or the ideal city-state, whereas the Romans just get down to business. Uh, they start a government, and then they figure out the details as they go along. And Polybius says this is exactly what was going on during the Punic Wars. They're, the Romans are problem-solving. They're meeting these different obstacles, and they're adapting to the situation. It's their ingenuity, uh, their, their practical uh, down-to-earth manner that enables them to pass this greatest test that they will ever face. It's a historical note that after Rome finishes off Carth Carthage, they become masters of the Mediterranean, essentially that, that uh, eastern world or, or the known world at the time, but then they begin to decline in decadence and they eventually collapse. Without that pressure of struggle and obstacle, uh, they, they decline into luxury and, and vice and they, they consume themselves and fall in on themselves and collapsing. I think that, that would also be another important note to consider is that struggle often brings out the best in a man. Sometimes we, we try and avoid struggle, we avoid pain, we avoid difficulty, but yet that creates a certain kind of either intellectual or even physical flabbiness because we are, aren't testing ourselves. So the Romans, as they're facing this pitched battle with, with Carthage, they have to learn uh, these virtues that are necessary in order to succeed. Without them, they, they become something else, they, they collapse. And so the same might be true of us. Uh, that we need struggle. We need to take on new challenges. Uh, we cannot avoid battles and, and difficulties as they come f just because they hurt. So it's the same with physical exercise as it is with intellectual effort. As I mentioned, Polybius isn't so much concerned with the actual wars themselves, although he spends about four or five books of his history describing these wars and, and different battles. He's most concerned with the constitution of Rome that enabled them to succeed. And this is a, uh, his writings here, when he starts considering the Roman institutions, both their government and their military system. Uh, both of these sections are enormously influential on modern political theory. That many uh, writers, authors, political theorists uh, look back to the ideas that Polybius presents about different kinds of governments and what he's going to propose as a mixed regime. So Polybius uh, begins the section of his work book six, by describing the three kinds of regime or government that have been outlined by classical authors. He's either drawing on Plato and Aristotle and Herodotus who talk about these three different regimes, or perhaps he's drawing on secondary writers. But whatever, whatever the case is, there's three main kinds of regime. They are monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. Now, monarchy is ruled by one. It is a king. It's a strong executive who essentially controls all power. Uh, his decision is the law. He is the law. He is the chief ruler. Aristocracy is ruled by a few, but these ought to be the best men. And these ought to be the wisest, the most just, the most virtuous, whatever it is. But the power is not consolidated in one person. It's spread over a smaller group of a few select individuals. And this council of elders or this, this group of, of men, this, this uh, you know, number of, of political offices, they are the ones in charge of making the laws, enforcing the laws, and, and essentially ruling the state. 
democracy, uh, or polity as I believe Aristotle is going to call it, is ruled by the many. So now the masses, the people, uh, have the say in government. Probably the greatest example of this, of course, is Athens, who all of the male citizens participated in the assembly on voting on very important issues such as going to war or not. You know, can you just imagine uh, what that would be like in your particular context if the people, everyone, had a say in things like taxation or going to war or not going to war or making an attack here or not? Uh, it, would, it would be quite scary. But Polybius criticizes this uh, diagnosis of the different regimes because he says there's actually more. There's more than three. There's actually six, possibly seven. But what he's really doing is he's just showing that each of these different kinds of regimes, rule by one, rule by a few, rule by many, also have corrupt counterparts. So kingship, rule by, by a wise and good man, can be corrupted into tyranny, where someone is abusing their authority and they do not rule for the good of the people, they only rule for the good of themselves. And that would be another form of regime, a tyranny. An aristocracy can be corrupted into an oligarchy, where you no longer have the wisest or best men ruling, but now you just have those that are rich or those that are powerful. But again, they're seeking their own best interests. They're not ruling for the good of the whole state. They're only ruling for themselves. And he would call this an oligarchy. And then the third form of corrupt regime is, is a little bit more difficult because we tend to use the same word for, for both the good and bad forms of rule of the many. We just say it's democracy. Uh, Polybius perhaps calls it violent democracy, where the masses, again, do not take thought for the whole. They only take thought for themselves, and they uh, cause the state to either uh, destroy the best men among them or they rise to violence. Uh, the majority uh, controls the minority and, and abuses them and, and takes their land and, and cancels debts and, and collapses in on itself. So whether it's democracy, whether it's violent democracy, there's a bad form of rule by many. All of the classical uh, uh, philosophers and political philosophers deal with different governments in these terms. They, they talk about these different kinds of regime. And really, you can't develop another kind of regime except for the seventh that, that Polybius is about to talk about. You either have rule by one, you have rule by a few, or you have rule by many. However you're choosing them, whoever they are, these are still the three basic kinds of government governance that you have. This not only applies to um, states and cities and nations, but you can also think in terms of smaller communities. So you can think of school governance, so you can think of church governance, so you can think of local organizations. What is their governance structure? Are they led by one head uh, a ruler who makes the decisions, who directs the mission, who, who puts everybody in place, one CEO type, or is it led by a council of a few men, whether it's a board of trustees or a board of advisors or, or there's a, a number of early founders that are directing the organization? Or instead, is it ruled by the, the people, the constituents, the most numerous uh, in the organization? And you can think of these different kinds of regimes as uh, taking place anywhere, whether as a state or as an organization. Uh, Polybius, as he's describing the history of these different regimes, uh, notes that Lycurgus of Sparta actually developed a seventh form of regime. And Polybius calls this a mixed regime, that it combines the, the elements of monarchy and aristocracy and democracy in order to stabilize uh, the government and prevent it from falling into the typical traps of destruction that await uh, the single or pure types of regime. 
So Sparta's constitution, there were actually two kings who led the military campaigns and went into battle. There was a council of elders or a, a form of a senate of about uh, 28 men uh, plus the two kings who were part of this, this council and senate who had uh, control of judging different cases and administering justice, and the kings were, were accountable to them in some ways. And then you had the mass of the rest of the Spartans. Um, and so he develops this mixed kind of regime that it's balancing the powers between the people, between the senates, and between the kings. Uh, Polybius is going to go on to describe Rome's mixed constitution, that he says they have the same thing. They are mixed. They have elements of kingship, elements of aristocracy, and elements of democracy. And it is this mixture that enables them to escape the cycle of regimes, or anacyclosis, which I'm going to talk about in just a minute. Likewise, uh, in uh, England and America uh, follow this, this idea of having a mixed form of regime. So really England in the 11th and 12th and 13th century as it's undergoing different changes to its governance structure. Uh, previously, there was a king of England, but he was relatively weak compared to the other nobles. Other nobles in the land could have bigger armies, more wealth, and the king had a hard time getting them on his side uh, unless it was also advantage, uh, advantageous to them as well. Well, in the 11th, 12th, 13th century, they start undergoing changes to the balance of, of power. The king starts centralizing the monarchy. But as he's doing this, he's also inviting the different nobles to become counselors and to, to form a parliament with a house of lords, an aristocratic element, but also a house of commons, where you have representatives from every town as well. And so this is creating a form of mixed regime where you have representatives uh, as, as the monarch, representatives from the nobles, and representatives from the people. It's, it's mixing these different elements to give a share of the rule. And Polybius is going to say this stabilizes a government. A government that is one of the pure regimes is uh, vulnerable to what is called anacyclosis or the cycle of regimes. I want to pause for a minute and thank you for listening to this podcast. It, it really helps to see that there are those that are listening. Uh, if you enjoy the show, uh, please go on Apple Podcasts and try and leave a five-star review and a, a rating. That would really help get the show in front of more people. Uh, I want to be able to keep producing more content and creating value for you. So if it is valuable to you, you could help me out by leaving a review there or even just sharing the word with, with your friends or those that you think would be interested in these different topics. I want to create this, this podcast as a way to get people introduced to classical literature and to inspire them to take up these different works for themselves. Uh, there's, C.S. Lewis talks about a misconception that there is, that often because we've read commentators on Plato for so long, we think that Plato's hard to understand. Well, it's not actually true. Uh, the commentators are the ones that are hard to understand, but if you read Plato himself, you would find him much more lucid and clear than his modern commentators. So I want to create this podcast as a way to encourage you uh, to dive into those works, and if it does have value for you, uh, please share the word. Thanks. As I just mentioned, Polybius is concerned with this idea of anacyclosis, or the cycle of regimes. That basically says that uh, these six kinds of government are inherently unstable. They tend to fall into another form of regime. So let me read a longer quote from Polybius that's, that's going to describe this. We ought thus to name six kinds of government. The three commonly spoke of, which I have just mentioned, and those which have certain elements in common with these, by which I mean one-man rule, minority rule, and mob rule. 
The first of these to come into being is one-man rule, which arises unaided and in the natural course of events. After one-man rule, and developing from it with the aid of art and through the correction of its defect, comes kingship. This later degenerates into its corrupt and associated form, by which I mean tyranny, and then the abolition of both gives rise to aristocracy. Aristocracy, by its very nature, degenerates into oligarchy, and when the populace rises in anger to avenge the injustices committed by its rulers, democracy is born. Then in due course, out of license and lawlessness which are generated by this type of regime, mob rule comes into being and completes the cycle. The truth of what I have just said will become perfectly clear to anyone who makes a careful study of the beginnings, origins, and changes which are natural to each of these forms of government. For it is only by observing how each of these constitutions comes into being that one can see when, how, and where the growth, perfection, and the change in the end of each is likely to recur. I believe that the Roman constitution is a better subject than any other for this method of analysis because its origin and growth have from the very beginning followed natural causes. So what Polybius is doing here is he's looking at history and he's looking at the way that governments and, and cities and nations typically arise. If you imagine there's some kind of natural disaster that, that wipes out most of the human race and they're starting over, it might follow a similar pattern to something like this. Now, Polybius says that you have groups of families uh, starting to cluster, cluster together for mutual advantage, uh, that they, they can provide different things to each other, they can protect each other from perhaps animals or, or disasters, they can share uh, different services together. But eventually, uh, the strong man is going to arise from this. Uh, he's going to be the most powerful, the most able to protect the community, and so he's given authority. So this is a, an early form of monarchy. But then they start to realize that just because he is strong uh, doesn't necessarily mean that he is the best ruler. And so they start to think in terms of reason. Uh, who would be the wisest ruler to, to govern the community? And this leads into a form of monarchy. Whether or not it has all the pomp and circumstance of, of modern monarchies, uh, it's still a one-man rule, and this man has the power over all uh, the, the community. Well, this is great until you have a bad ruler who ends up with all power over the community. And this is how it degenerates into tyranny. Yet from a tyranny, uh, often there are going to be a few men who are going to look at that guy and say, he is not wise, he is not just, he is not good, we need to get him out of here. And so they overthrow the tyrant, and they set themselves up as a council of rulers uh, with the, the endorsement of the people. Essentially, they say, look, uh, we had one ruler for a time, and it went very badly, so we don't want a single ruler anymore. We want multiple rulers, and hopefully they can check and balance each other and, and restrain it. Well, this is great while you have good and wise rulers. You have a council of elders that rules for the sake of the community and the people. But and this quickly degenerates if uh, the, the office passes on to their sons or something like that, and they realize, hey, these men are honored, but they don't make any money. And so by a love of money, they start pursuing their own interests, their own private goods above the goods of the state, and this transitions to an oligarchy, where you have a few men who are only concerned about themselves enriching themselves. When this takes place, Polybius says that eventually the people will rise up and overthrow the oligarchs, and they will say, we're, we're, we're done with the government of a few, we are instead are going to govern ourselves. Why do we need uh, authorities and, and uh, governance anyways? We can just govern ourselves and we'll take care of ourselves. Like all of the previous regimes, this works great while the governors are, in fact, virtuous themselves. 
But if they are consumed with their own self-interests, their own passions, their own vices, then it eventually turns in on itself and eats itself. And so democracy degrades into what Polybius calls a violent democracy, uh, where they are, uh, again, stealing from others for their own good. Uh, they're voting to give themselves uh, more wealth, and it, it degrades and destroys the, the constitution. Well, out of democracy, of course, arises a strong man, one who can uh, arouse the will of the people, who can promise them the most things, who can uh, unify the, the biggest faction, and they, they vote to give him full charge, and now you're back to a form of kingship or tyranny again. And when, when Aristotle talks about this idea, uh, he talks about these, uh, each regime has its, the seeds of its own destruction, that inherent in each type of government, there's a certain weakness, right? Monarchs, uh, if you have a monarchy, well, you can end up with a tyrant, and of course, that's no good. Uh, if you have government by a few, well, within that is the constant pull to private interests, that if you're in a position of power, you can use this for your own advantage, and so this pulls towards oligarchy. If you are in a democracy, well, the rule of the, the masses is always going to be the poor setting themselves against the few rich, and so they tend to steal and attack the rich, which produces these factions within the city. Uh, it, it cannot balance a budget. Uh, it creates all sorts of internal conflicts and strife, out of which typically arises some kind of strongman. And so you're right back to tyranny. So each regime, Aristotle says, carries the seeds of its own destruction. It's, it's inherently unstable. Uh, this is actually the, the history of Rome as, as well, uh, which is what Polybius points out, that Rome began with kingship, with Romulus, uh, and then the... the uh, uh, various kings after him, Numa Pompilius, and then the, the Etruscan and, and uh, Tarquin kings. But uh, they commit heinous acts, they become tyrants, and so Rome rises up to expel the Tarquins. In place of the Tarquins, they, they uh, elect two consuls each year and a senate, so they move to an aristocratic form of government. Well, uh, this leads to conflicts between the senate class, uh, the patricians, and then the populace or the plebeians, the plebeians on a few occasions leave the city and say, we're not fighting in your stupid wars anymore. You can figure out how to defend yourselves yourself. Um, and so this is forces the, the governance to concede uh, tribunes to the people. So now the people have representation. So Rome, uh, uh, Polybius argues, uh, didn't come to a mixed constitution by any kind of uh, philosophical rumination. They didn't sit down and plan this out ahead of time. And this actually points to the great virtue of the Romans that I, I've, I've referenced. They're innovators. They're, they're practical. Uh, they don't theorize about the ideal form of government, but they just fix problems as they come up. And Polybius says the difference between Rome and uh, Lycurgus and Sparta was that Lycurgus planned it out ahead of time. Rome sort of fell into it over the course of its history. But I think this idea of the cycle of regimes and how each regime carries with it the seeds of its own destruction is Incredibly instructive for us today as we consider uh, governance. Uh, in, and again, in America, uh, there are various uh, movements vying for power. Uh, there are populist movements that seek to give more direct power to the people that wants to take power away from the executive uh, or the, the monarchical type figure in the president or away from the aristocratic type uh, governance in the Senate. And it wants to move it towards the people. So we've seen various populist uh, institutions arise over the course of history, right? the direct election of senators, which I believe was the 17th Amendment. 
Uh, there's moves with this interstate compact to abolish the Electoral College and instead have a national popular vote, uh, removing uh, one um, check by the founders and cr- making it more populist. Um, perhaps extending more issues to direct vote by the people instead of passing it through the Congress, uh, the elected representatives. Well, I think Polybius should warn us a little bit about the dangers of direct democracy because it becomes inherently unstable. And typically what happens out of a democracy is that you end up with a strong man, a tyrant, who can promise the most things, and it ends with him demanding a bodyguard, right? The savior of the people needs a bodyguard, and you are in a bad spot if this ever happens to your your governance. But also I think we should pay attention to uh, impulses towards the opposite extreme. We should be afraid of removing the democratic checks and balances and moving towards either an aristocracy, a rule by a few, or even a monarchy, rule by one man. I think it's incredibly uh, disturbing uh, the amount of executive orders that have been signed by presidents in recent years, as that they are uh, taking to themselves prerogatives and rights which are supposed to be spread among Congress and in these other institutions of governments. Uh, So this is why every four or eight years we have a new president that comes in and he immediately undoes all of the executive orders of his predecessor. This is a monarchical impulse that the one single executive is making these decisions, but it's inherently unstable. History shows us that uh, Athenian democracy actually destroyed itself. We like to praise Athens as the birthplace of democracy and the first uh, city to give the people a voice. What happened to them during the Peloponnesian War was that uh, they saw their farmlands being destroyed outside the city walls. They saw uh, themselves being under attack. They started panicking about money, and so they they wildly embark on this Sicilian expedition. Now, I believe one historian actually said they they should have won this Sicilian expedition even though they lost the first uh, battles uh, in the first campaign, and they really blundered it. But it was because the democracy was so unstable. They, they voted to send people, then to recall them, then to send them again, then to try a different t- tactic, and they couldn't make up their minds and stay constant in their choices, which is the nature of democracy. Uh, they ended up uh, losing this campaign, exp- losing a great number of ships and money, and they ended up losing the Peloponnesian War as a result of this failed campaign. But it was because of their democracy. It could not hold a course. And this is really a benefit of, of single leaders or a, a council of a few is that they are less moved by different passions or, or sudden setbacks. Polybius actually has a, an episode in his uh, histories where he describes the, a, a decimation of a few Roman legions. And when the news gets back to Rome, the people have never heard anything like this and they start to panic. But the Senate, they've, they've been around the block. They, they know their history and so they, they are less moved by this. Um, but back to Athens, uh, towards the end of the war, they actually restored an oligarchy. They gave power to a few rich individuals because they, they panicked. Um, democracy is inherently unstable. Uh, but so are the other forms of pure regime. Uh, they are inherently unstable and tend to cycle to the next one. So Polybius is writing this history to show that a mixed regime is the most stable, that it, it, it can Stop this anacyclosis, this cycle of regime where you're having these revolutions every few or or hundred years or however long it takes, but you can have stability. This can provide for private and public virtue. So here's Polybius again describing the the mixed regime and how Lycurgus and then Rome came to this, this idea. Now Lycurgus, through his powers of reasoning, 
could foresee the direction in which events naturally moved and the factors which caused them to do so, and thus constructed his constitution without having to learn the lessons which misfortune teaches. The Romans, on the other hand, although they have arrived at the same result as regards their form of government, did not do so by means of abstract reasoning, but rather through the lessons learned from the many struggles and difficulties. And finally, by always choosing the better course in the light of experience acquired from disasters. They have reached the same goal as Lycurgus, that is, the best of all existing constitutions. And so here Polybius is comparing them and saying that both arrived at the same place, a mixed constitution, a one that provides for stability, but they went about it through different methods. Lycurgus, a Greek, uh, does it through, through reasoning, through philosophical insight. Uh, Rome, on the other hand, uh, plows through these difficulties and adapts to different situations that, that come to them. Uh, they learned through struggle uh, and through difficulty, but they always chose the better option and they managed to come out with a mixed constitution. So what does that mean for us today? Well, I think there's a number of points of, of takeaway that we could, we could look to. I think we need to be incredibly concerned about the erosion in America of these different checks and balances uh, that the, the founders and framers of the Constitution were looking back to Montesquieu, who was looking back to Polybius, and this idea of, of balancing uh, monarchical elements with aristocratic elements with, with popular elements. So the, the president right, is, is compared to the monarchical element. He is he's the, an executive. He is the commander-in-chief. Uh, he is the one who is able to most directly decide issues without needing to take uh, long periods of counsel. You do not want to be in a war with a democracy at the head because everything has to be decided by committee. Uh, if you've served on committees, you know how awful that is trying to decide anything. You need a quick decision and a wise decision so that you can win battles. But yet this is balanced by an aristocratic element, the Senate. It's specifically a limited number of 100 senators uh, that are supposed to be the best men of their state who represent their state's interests but also serve the interests of the nation. This is balanced by a popular element, the, the House. Uh, this is proportional to the population, and they're elected every two years, which means they are closely tied to the will of the people. Uh, the Senate, on the other hand, is elected every six years, and this is supposed to give some stability, give some weight to that office, as opposed to the House, which is every two years, because it needs to closely align with whatever the majority is thinking at a particular time. It needs to track with the changing uh, whims and wills of the people. It's a democratic element. So we should beware the erosion between these different checks and balances and interplay between these different offices. I mentioned the rise of executive orders, uh, but we also need to be very firm on the idea that the president and the Supreme Court do not make laws. Uh, that's an office that's delegated to the aristocratic and democratic elements of the House and Senate. Congress makes laws. So if you look at something like Roe v. Wade, it's a court opinion. It's a precedent but it is not a law, and we need to be careful of how we talk about that. Uh, this being too loose and sloppy, saying that presidents can make laws or the Supreme Court can make laws, ultimately leads to an erosion of these checks and balances, an erosion of the mixed constitution, which Polybius warns us is going to lead to anacyclosis or a revolution or a collapse of the government, which I hope you will agree would be a very bad thing. I think it's also very interesting to watch different changes in American governance over the last, you know, say, 100 years or so. That it's as it the federal power grows, it becomes more centralized. There's a sense in which it's losing local contact. 
Uh, I don't know about you, but this, my particular senators feel very distant, and it's, it's hard to uh, feel any weight that my voice would have on them, uh, even House representatives as well. They sort of seem like, well, they're off in Washington doing whatever it is they do in Washington, but they're very disconnected from local issues. Even in our elections, we tend to focus a lot on the federal offices, but we ignore the local uh, town, city, uh, county offices instead. Right? It, it's losing that local contact. It's losing that bit of uh, demo de democracy, a democratic element. But yet at the same time, the federal system is becoming more populist. It's becoming more democratic. Uh, there are many movements to try and increase the franchise, increase suffrage. All right, Every few years, there's a proposal to lower the voting age down to 16, maybe even 14. These are all uh, populist movements. So you have this weird dynamic of you're, becoming, you're moving away from democracy and local control, but at the same time becoming more populist. And I think that's something to keep an eye on. I think this is also something to keep in mind even with local organizations and institutions, that you want to beware uh, having a form of governance that is directly tied to one of those three pure regimes, whether monarchy, aristocracy, or democracy. Instead, uh, in these different organizations, you want to try and have a mix, a balance. So at school, right, which is my occupation, uh, you want to have a, a head, a, a leader, one who is primarily directing the mission and everyday operations of the school, who can quickly make decisions, who is able to, to uh, address emergencies and things like this, but yet he has around him uh, advisors or a, a council or, in, in our case, a board that is, is able to overrule him, that he has to uh, be attuned to their interests as well and their, their wisdom. But yet both of these groups, in turn, have to be uh, attuned to the constituency of the school. They have to pay attention to what students and parents want. Uh, they are accountable to them. But yet if you shift control too far to that, you can end up taking the school in a direction uh, that is out of accord with, with the mission, right? If, if there's a populist revolt that happens or something like this. So you're trying to mix and balance these different interests. Uh, Polybius says that the great uh, virtue of the Roman system is that the consuls can't do anything without also considering the needs of the Senate and the people. The Senate has to consider the people uh, and the consuls, and the people of, through the tribunes has to consider the needs of the, the Senate and the consuls. It's balanced. It's mixed. And this preserves stability, which is a very good thing. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Handmade Humanity. Again, I'm Austin Hoffman. I'm so glad you uh, joined me on this episode. I hope you found it helpful, and I'll see you again next week.